so like I said, we're going to be reading John 10 tonight. Uh, the second half of it. Sorry, will you hand me a set of those notes? Thank you. Um, I thought I have one, but I don't. <clears throat> um, John 10 is wonderful. For those of you who, who weren't here last week, we talked about the Good Shepherd. And just as a recap, remember we talked about the leadership that was at stake. The leadership in the Good Shepherd. Jesus is the Good Shepherd, unlike the thieves in hired hands of John 9. Mm. The Pharisees are the thieves. The Pharisees are the hired hands, the ones who don't care about the sheep, who don't lay down their life. They are the ones who kicked the, bl- the blind man out of community, right? The blind man was under bad shepherds the Pharisees, and the good shepherd found him, invited him into community with himself. That's what we read last week. So as we think about the shepherd imagery, remember I talked about Jeremiah 23, I talked about Ezekiel 34, that is Old Testament imagery for leaders, for leadership. The leaders of Israel were shepherds. That's what they referred to them as, right? And of course that has a long history. It has a long history of the patriarchs of Ezekiel 34 says, the Lord is the shepherd of Israel, right? And Psalm 23, which we all know very well, right? The Lord is my shepherd. So it has a long history. And Jesus is going to bring that back up here. But first, John wants us to understand that some time has passed. So it begins in verse 22 like this. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Feast of Dedication, if you know um, your Bible history, uh, well actually, excuse me, if you, if this actually isn't Bible history, is it? It's Hanukkah. Okay? So what is in the scriptures, this is an extra biblical feast. Okay, we know it happened in the Maccabean period between the Testaments. In our New and Old Testament, what we have today, it happened in that middle period in between them. Um, <clears throat> and so this feast that John is bringing up is interesting because it's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the Old Testament scriptures. But the Feast of Dedication, if you understand your Jewish history, is referring to Hanukkah. And what does Hanukkah celebrate? Well, Hanukkah celebrates national deliverance national deliverance. The national deliverance of the Jewish people by the Maccabees, right? If you know their history, the Maccabees were a family of Jews, and Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, as he was known, he freed the Jewish people from oppression. They were under the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, this is important for what we're about to read, he set himself up to be God in the temple, right? So the, the, the great offense is Antiochus went into the Jerusalem temple, slaughtered a pig on the altar, mm. and profaned it. And he set himself up to be God in the Jewish temple. Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the God of, of Israel. Right? He was God over. That's how he thought of himself. And of course... Nothing could be more offensive to the Jews than for them to profane the very temple of God, 
God's presence. Mm -hmm. And so the Maccabees rose up and they actually successfully revolted. They actually defeated Antiochus and kicked them out of the land of, of Israel. And so what ended up happening is this special day. Now we only think about the oil, right? The oil that never ran out. We kind of know that, that anecdote, that story that we've heard. But what it's really celebrating, the Feast of Dedication, is rededicating the temple to the Lord. The temple that was profaned has been rededicated to God. And every year, this is in, when it says it's in winter, it's roughly, now the, their months don't match up exactly, <clears throat> but roughly in December um, is the month that this takes place in, the Feast of Dedication. So we know some time has passed, probably a several months from where we were earlier. What's interesting is John uh, doesn't really mention the passing of time. We've been all in the Feast of Tabernacles. And this festival, now that we've gone, is coming towards the end of what we call our calendar year, and it's winter. And so Jerusalem gets cold, and it says Jesus is walking in the temple, and he's in the portico of Solomon, right? It's a covered area. It's got the, you know, the roof over it, and so it's, it's against the buildings. It's protected from wind. It's, it's cold. And, and so he's, he's keeping warm in the temple. And it says the Jews approach him at the Feast of Dedication. And they say to him, the Jews then gathered around, of, uh, around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, please tell us plainly. Now, the reason I have to give you that background, think about what they are asking Jesus at the Feast of National Deliverance. You are the Messiah, tell us, so that you can lead the revolution. Right? This is not Jesus, we need salvation in a spiritual sense. Jesus, we're slaves to sin. Tell us that you're the Christ so that you can save us. No. Jesus, are you the new Judas? The Judas Maccabeus? Are you here to lead our country to freedom? We're at the Feast of Dedication. We remember our national deliverance by those who came before. Are you here to kick out the Romans? Mm. Tell us, are you the Christ? Jesus doesn't answer explicitly. Because to do so would be to invite them, A, to either revolt against Rome, which was not Jesus' intention, right? He was not a political Messiah. He was a spiritual Messiah. He was going to save them from their sin. That's one. Or two, this would be the Jews' charge against him. I am the Christ. Hey, Caesar, did you hear? This guy's the Christ. Just like Judas Maccabeus. Kill him. Jesus is stuck with how he answers that question. And so Jesus answers subtly. He does not say openly and explicitly, Yes, I am the Christ. He says, I have already told you. I have already told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. 
Jesus says, look at what I have been doing, opening the eyes of the man born blind, healing a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Don't these works testify to who I I am? Have I not told you? Have you not seen the evidence of who I am? But you don't believe. Jesus is going to explain their disbelief. Why don't they believe? That's the real question, isn't it? They've seen the signs. They've seen the evidence. Why don't they believe? Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. See, from the divine perspective, and we have to think through this, and it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue to think through. Security of salvation. Are are we in? Are we out? That question. But from the divine perspective, Jesus says... No, you don't get it. You don't believe because you aren't part of my sheep. Because if you were part of my sheep, you would know my voice. It's the reverse of what he said last week when we read the beginning of John 10, right? He said, my sheep know my voice. And here he's saying, if you don't know my voice, it's because you're not my sheep. It's the reverse of last week. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus talks about the security from this divine perspective. The security we have in Jesus is holding power. We have to reckon with those statements. I think both sides do, right? We, we, are, we are given both in Scripture. We're given warnings to cling to faith. We're given warnings to believe. We're told not to apostatize, not walk away from the faith. And at the same time, we're told, no one will snatch them out of my hand. God knows who are His, and He is holding them. And that's a paradox. It, it's hard to comprehend. But we have to hold those two things in tension, right? We have to be mindful of our faith. We have to monitor it. We have to work at it. Mm-hmm. And yet we know we have security because Christ says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. And then he says, one further. You know what? If even Basically, this is what he's saying. Even if someone could snatch you out of my hand, no one will ever snatch you out of my Father, out of his hand. My Father, who is greater than all, he says. My Father, who is greater than all, gave them to me. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What a statement. What a statement. I and the Father are one. Man, they're asking if he's the Christ. Jesus is one-upping them, isn't he? He's like, no, no, no. Your aspirations are so little. You're talking about national deliverance. I'm one with the Father. I have a purpose greater than you can possibly fathom. Jesus and the Father are in the work of holding their sheep. It's a a statement of radical unity of Jesus and his Father. The man Jesus 
is one with the Father. It's actually the statement that opens this gospel, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and was with God, right? It was with God and was God. Both and. There's a radical unity and yet there's a distinction. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We're unified. We work at the same things. It's like Jesus said earlier. I work the works of my Father. I, I just do what I see Him doing. Because I'm just like Him. So how is that received? The man Jesus. The true Son of God. The Christ. They've asked if He's the Christ. He says, I've told you already. We know, we know as the reader, He is the Christ, isn't He? How do they receive that? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them. This is a, this is a, a world-class level of snark right here, by the way. <laughs> I love this response of Jesus. I mean, you want to talk about just what should cut someone to the core? I showed you many good works. For which of my good works are you stoning me? <laughs> See, the other thing that the Feast of Dedication was remembering was the good works of Judas Maccabeus. The good work of freeing the nation. Jesus says, I too have done good works. So which of these is the one you're stoning me for? He catches them off guard. They say... For a good work we do not stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. It's interesting, isn't it? They speak truer than they know. Because he is God. We knew that from the first verse of this book, once we read it, right? The first verse tells us he was God, he was with God. The ironic thing, of course, is that Jesus is not a man making himself out to be God. One fourteen of John tells us, no, he was God who made himself man. That's the irony, isn't it? They say, you, you're, you are way above your station. You're just some little man, and you're trying to make yourself out to be God. How arrogant, how proud, how despicable of you. No, Jesus was God who made himself man, the most humble, the most kind, the most obedient, the most dependent on his Father. Jesus is exactly opposite of who they make him out to be. His character is impeccable, of course. But Jesus tries to catch them one last time to catch their hearts. And he says this, and I'm sure it confused them, right? He's going to make an argument from the scriptures. He says, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, 
you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So Jesus is quoting from the scripture, so we have to ask ourselves what he's, what he's talking about. Right? The quote he has, the background there in your notes, is Psalm 82. He's quoting from Psalm 82. I'm going to read you the whole psalm. It's really short. It's about eight verses. But he's quoting from Psalm 82. And in this psalm, God is in his council. He's in his congregation. Now, originally, what he's referring to is this idea of a heavenly court. That God is keeping host. Right? He's, he's holding court with the hosts around him. Okay? The heavenly beings, if you will. Okay. So Jesus, uh, excuse me, so God the Father says this. God, this is Psalm 82. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Because the, or excuse me, rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Now, I'll give you some Hebrew here to understand it. The word for rulers in that first verse, he judges amongst the rulers. That word, if you you might have heard this word before, that word is Elohim. Elohim. Right? That's that's God. He judges amongst the gods. Okay? So there is this heavenly idea of judging amongst the gods, um, but speaking to the leaders, the rulers of nations, right? And, and those two kind of get conflated. This heavenly court and this idea of God judging amongst the rulers of the nation. And so that's why they translate it rulers in that first part. Rulers rather than gods. But the word is Elohim. It's the word used consistently throughout the Old Testament to refer to God, not Lord, capital Lord. That's the... the divine name, right? But when it says just God, the word behind God is Elohim. So he judges in the midst of the gods. He's telling them to judge rightly. And then it says this in verse 5, They do not know and do not understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, Elohim. You are gods. And sons of the Most High... Nevertheless, you will die like men, and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. That's the whole psalm. So he says to these rulers, these rulers of the nations, rulers of the people, that you are gods, and yet you will die just like a mere man. Right? He's humbling them. They have exalted themselves, and he will humble them. Okay, it's about rulers, leaders. Now, in Israel's interpretation, the way Israel understood itself, they were the congregation of God, right? They were the people of God, and therefore they were God's congregation. So, many interpretations of this psalm say that God is speaking in the midst of Israel, speaking to its rulers, okay? the rulers of the people, the rulers of Israel. And therefore, he's saying, 
you are gods to them, but you will die like mere men because they're not judging rightly. But he does still say you are gods. And so Jesus, in his argument, is saying, don't you get it? He's saying that those, Israel, those to whom the word of the Lord came, is Israel, right? They received the word of the Lord at Mount Sinai. They're the people who received the word. And he said to them, you are gods. And Jesus uses that argument to say, if God can say to you, the congregation he has, you are gods, how much more is that true of the one who was sanctified, set apart, and sent into the world? He's referring to himself. If you can be called gods as the rulers of the people... How can I, the true Son of God, not be called a Son of God? Why are you here to stone me for saying I am a Son of I am the Son of God, or I and the Father are one, when even your scriptures tell you that you are gods because you receive the word of the Lord? That's the argument Jesus is making. Now, granted, it's a confusing argument. I understand that. But that's the background of why Jesus is saying this. And I'm sure it catches them off guard. Right? They're about to stone him. And he makes this scriptural argument. So they have to stop and they have to think. And they have to process what he's saying. And it gives him that last minute he needs. That last few seconds to say something to them. Right? Because they're taken aback. He's giving them one last chance to receive him. Receive him as who he said he was, the true Son of God, the one sanctified, which, by the way, sanctified is about dedication, isn't it? Jesus, at the Feast of Dedication, had been dedicated for a purpose. That's what Jesus is saying. I have been sanctified and sent into the world. The true dedication is Jesus himself, right? He is the one who has been dedicated for a purpose. So Jesus says, tries to, to catch them one last time, catch their hearts. And he says that argument, and then he says this. If I don't do the works of my Father, he's back to the works. Don't believe me. But if I do do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works. Believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. One last plea for them to believe. Listen, think about what I've done. Even if you don't believe that I'm the Messiah, think about the works. Don't they tell you that I am of the Father and the Father is of me, that we are unified? And of course the tragedy is their hearts are not caught, are they? And yet Jesus already knew this because he'd said already, you can't believe because you're not my sheep. Still in grace, he offers them another chance. Another chance to believe, to repent, to turn to him, and they don't because they're not his sheep. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Again, not only is the father watching over the sheep, the father's watching over Jesus, isn't he? Because Jesus' hour has not yet come. 
so Jesus will not be grasped by the crowd. And yet that day is fast approaching. Fast approaching for Jesus. Verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything he said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Jesus retreats. He retreats out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, across the Jordan, back to where John was at the beginning. <clears throat> and this is a literary technique called an inclusio. An inclusio is bringing up the same topic on ends of a passage to, to remind you that this is kind of one unit, right? John hasn't been mentioned for ch many chapters. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, you're taken back. Oh yeah, remember John's witness? It's telling us that a major transition is about to take place. And we know that. Why? Because in the beginning of John 1, John's witness is there. At the end of John 10, John's witness is there. And what else is there? Sheep in John 10. And what does John say about Jesus in John 1? The Lamb of the world who will take away its sin. The Lamb of God. Right? I said Lamb of the world. Excuse me. The Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. That's what John proclaims about who Jesus is. We know as this is ending, and it's back to sheep, it's back to John. We're reminded of what John said in the beginning. This Jesus that John spoke about, he's the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. Okay, what's happening with that? We're about to find out. We're about to find out because Jesus' ministry is ending. His time here on earth is ending. Jesus has left Jerusalem for the last time. When he comes back again here, he will come back to Bethany. And he'll raise Lazarus. But when he goes back to Jerusalem again, his time has come. The Greeks seek Jesus, and he knows immediately. Gentiles are coming to seek him. My hour has come. It's time. Then he gives these beautiful, some of the most beautiful chapters in scripture, really. Beautiful upper room discourse. His last words, his last directions, his last comfort to his disciples. He prays probably the most beautiful prayer in scripture over them in John 17. John 18, he's arrested. John 19, he's crucified. John 20, he's resurrected. And John 21, he restores Peter. That's what we have to look forward to. But we are hitting a major transition here as we end John 10 and head towards Lazarus. What a great story. I'm so excited to preach that next week. But here we have to think about all that Jesus has done, all the pain and suffering he has felt from John 1 to John 10. How many people, even those he, he touched personally who have rejected him, like the lame man. Even his own disciples in John 6, after the bread of life discourse, who say, that's a hard teaching. 
we won't follow anymore. Jesus, despite all of that, the note John 10 ends us with is to remind us that Jesus, despite his pain, despite his suffering, despite his rejection, he's still the good shepherd. He's still the good shepherd. What a comfort that is to us. What a comfort that Jesus is the true shepherd, the good shepherd. He's not a hired hand. He's not a thief here to kill and steal and destroy like those leaders. He's the good shepherd. Tonight, to end, I uh, just want to ask for something from you. This I something on my heart and thinking about, and uh, very serious to me. But uh, my son, my son Eli, uh, I told you. I, I I don't know if all. I assume all of you know, but um, I, we haven't had in-depth conversation probably about it recently, but. Um, I have Tourette's, so that's something that's very impactful, a mental uh, disorder, a syndrome, and um, neurological disorder, I guess I should say, for my medical family. Thank you. <coughs> You're welcome. Um, and that's cost me a lot in my life. It's a severe thing that has uh, cost me much. And over the last three weeks, it's really become evident to me that Eli has it. Mm. Uh, and he's not having tics like I did when I was young, but he's having a lot of obsessive compulsive behaviors where we have to do things the right way, in the right order. We have to redo them until they feel right. All things that I know. And um, there's so many times that I've been a bad shepherd. I'll yell at him or get mad or, you know, just... When he can't control himself, like, you can't help but do something physical to stop him. I, I can't let him hurt someone, hurt his pregnant mom or hurt Gwenny. <clears throat> been so many times I've been a bad shepherd and uh, I'm grieved by that because I'm the one who understands his pain and it's hard to fathom and I think it'd make it easier to show grace and I guess in some sense it does but it's also hard to fathom how to deal with my son's mental problems when I have my own and uh, this may not make sense to any of you. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe not. It's hard to feel like you have given a curse in your blood to your child. 
So I look to the good shepherd. So when I say I'm grateful for the good shepherd, I recognize what a failed shepherd I can be. So I'm grateful for him. But if I could ask you, <clears throat> ask you for your prayers as we explore what to do, and I'm not sure if that's medication or therapy or what it is, but um, my boy needs help. And he's suffered so much in his sweet little life. And, uh, He suffered so much in his sweet little life. Uh, for a boy of only five, it's hard to fathom sometimes. But he's at home right now. He had a, a rough day. And so mommy texted me and said, he's good, he's at home contentedly playing in the bath, having a nice time by himself. So that was an encouragement. so grateful Jesus is a shepherd that he walks with us tenderly and calls us by name he leads us out to good pasture and brings us home for safety back to the fold and that's my prayer for my son that Jesus would lead him to pasture lead him back to the fold so I thank you for uh, hearing my heart on that Thank you. I covet your prayers for him in this sweet little life. I am, I'm praying his little sister will be a balm to his soul, a balm to his heart, and give him peace, give him someone to look after, to take care of. So I'm going to uh, pray for my son, if you would, if you'd indulge me. Heavenly Father, we trust in your holding power. Thank you that you gave your sheep to Jesus. Thank you that he holds us in his hands. Thank you that you, the one who is greater than all, hold us in your hands. Lord, I pray Eli would hear your voice in the quietness of his little soul. Would you call out to him like Eli? <laughs> Even if he doesn't understand excuse me, like Samuel, would he hear your voice like Samuel, even if he doesn't understand? <clears throat> and would he uh, have those special moments with you, hear your voice, and Lord, if he doesn't understand, would you send him to me that I could help him, like Eli? Hallelujah. Interpret that it's you speaking to him, that it's you calling him. <laughs> 
Spirit, I pray you would comfort my son. You'd give rest to his soul. You would bind up his broken heart. And I do pray, unashamedly, that if you would, would you heal him? I believe in your healing power. And at the same time, Lord, I know my own suffering, my own experience, shaped me into the man I am. And I trust that if you don't heal, you have a greater purpose. I trust that his suffering will be a good teacher. It will not lead him astray. It will not make him jaded or bitter. That it will teach him deep compassion. And help him learn to love you and love people well. I trust your will will be done. In Jesus, I submit my son to you as the shepherd of his soul. Yes, Where I fail so often, and I'm so finite and so human, I trust in you, the true human, the one who is in perfection in humanity, to guard his soul. To pick up my failures and redeem them. And to shape him into a great man of God like you were, Jesus. Be with his sisters. May they love him well. they bring comfort and grace to him. Be with his mother, who I know is so grieved. Be with Monique, my love, who fought so hard for our son in that hospital, Lord. I trust that my son is named well. Named Elisha, my God saves, because you saved him in that hospital room when he should be dead. You protected him by your very hand. I pray that same comfort would come to Monique again. When she knew that you saved him and protected his life. Lord, teach me your ways. I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the peace, I don't have the joy, I don't have the things that I need to be the good shepherd of his life. Teach me. Uphold me. Let me pour my life out for him.
My sweet, sweet firstborn son. We trust you. Lord, I also pray you would bless each person in this room. As the pastor in this room, Lord, I pray that you would bless these people. You'd help them love Eli well, because I'm praying about this right now. Help them to love each other well. Lord, would you give them insight this day. You do so much more than we can even fathom. And so I pray you give each one of, each one of us insight tonight into how you shepherd us, into how you have shepherded us, into the ways that you've watched over our souls and kept anyone from snatching us. I pray we'd each be reminded of that this evening. Throughout this week, will we turn to Jesus because we know we're ripe to be attacked by thieves and wolves, by hired hands who don't care for us. We entrust our souls and our lives, our bodies, our very being to you, the Good Shepherd, Jesus. In Jesus' name. I pray. May your spirit be powerful in Eli's life. And all of our lives. Amen. Love you. Thank you guys.